Welcome to Zen Mind, a podcast featuring talks from Zenki Doloroshi, the guiding teacher at the Boulder Zen Center here in Boulder, Colorado. Zenki Roshi's teaching is made possible through the Boulder Zen Center's membership program. If you're benefiting from these talks and would like to continue hearing them here on the podcast, I hope you'll consider becoming a member. You can do so on our website, boulderzen.org, and you'll find a link in the episode notes. I want to quickly let you know that Zenki Roshi will be teaching a seminar on the weekend of March 25th through 27th. The topic of the seminar is change and stability. We'll be looking at how our attention is constantly pulled into either resisting or craving change, and how through meditation and mindfulness we can learn to rest in our own attentiveness. The seminar will include both in-person and online participants, and you'll find a link in the episode notes to learn more and register on our website. This week we have a talk that was recorded last Friday evening and was given to a group of Zen practitioners prior to a weekend meditation intensive here at Boulder Zen Center. Here's Zenki Roshi. Good evening again. Um, I'm experimenting with this. I want to start these weekend sittings with um, by talking about zazen, talking about what we're doing all weekend, you know, meditating. And if you've done this for a long time, you may just go to the cushion and do your thing. And, and you can always do that. Nobody's, there's no police in your mind. Um, but I'm thinking, you know, maybe to highlight a few things can give you ideas of what you're not doing and you might try it out and so on. Um, I also think maybe we have time for some questions. If you do have questions uh, about technique or what you're doing or if you're coming from a different tradition, we can um, touch on that. So that can start to be in your mind, you know, what is there something you want to ask? Now, often I say that um, meditation is the joining of, uh, of a physical posture with a mental posture. And um, today I had the same thought. It's like, yeah, that's a good description. But then I thought, well, maybe you can add something because um, we could talk about an energetic posture. Now, energy is a woo-woo word. You know, it's like, oh, energy. But I try to define it very pragmatically as the flow of sensation in the body. And we can see what that means. Mostly that's for each of us to find out ourselves, what is the flow of sensation in the body. So, you know, if you look at it in very simple terms, if you make a motion to jump up, you feel rising energy in the body. 
mean, you could try this right now. It's like, it feels like whoa, something's lifting in the body. Uh, that's what I call energy. If you're sleepy and you uh, feel like you, you're being drawn down to fall asleep, that's also energy. That's settling or sinking energy. This is rising energy and this is sinking energy. So it's just like that. Now this, it can become subtle, you know, the flow of energy, the flow of sensation, energetic flow can become subtle. Um, then that's something we can start to observe as our attention is uh, more on the body and not in the thinking mind. Okay, but we can go step by step. So first, a few things about the physical posture. Again, I've said this many times, but your lower body is basically, the main thing about the lower body is to create a stable base for an upright spine. And it is up to you to create that stable base. Um, I'm physically capable to sit full lotus, you know, but I don't because I'm not relaxed enough. So I've decided at some point, you know, this doesn't have to be a sport. This is just about <laughs> creating a stable base to create an upright spine, uh, to allow an upright spine. Um, and there are different ways you can sit. You can kneel, you can so forth, right? Um, now, the upright spine... So the formulation I'm settling on is to invite the spine into uprightness. You can force the spine into uprightness, structurally and muscularly, and then that's like this, you know. This is not something you can really sustain energetically because your muscles will tire. If you sit for a long period of time, that's just going to go away. So if your energetic tendency is to slump, to do this muscularly will work for a few <coughs> minutes or something, and then you'll slump back. It's just the way it is. And maybe that's a few years you try that, you know, and then you get tired of it. It's like, this isn't working. So you need to invite the spine energetically into uprightness, and it's a kind of inner craft how to do it. So I've also mentioned this before. Some of you have heard it. It's like one way I do it is like I put attention on the top of my head and I put attention on um, the at the base of the spine and the perineum. And I feel these two points and it's almost like I want to create a certain kind of voltage between them and a current that kind of wants to come up and straighten the spine from the inside. It's subtle. If you start to get a feeling for it, it's like there is energy rising up the column of the spine. Not in the spine, you know, we're not talking about kundalini energy, uh, you know, that may be related. I'm just talking about how you feel that there is a kind of 
there are micro movements within your body that allow the spine to come into uprightness. And you can be very gentle about it. It's not about the result, it's about the process. And to feel how this um, invitation for the spine to find uprightness, what it does for your overall feeling of being present. I sit, I, I, I watch my 10 month old son sit in the high chair, you know, for eating. And it's like, it's unbelievable. You know, he just sits there the way we should sit, doesn't <laughs> He's no problem. He can't lean back. He can't really lean forward, otherwise he will fall. And he's just, today, for the first time, I saw that he was, he was squatting, you know, something I can't do anymore. Just squatting. And then he just came up in the, in the column of his spine into standing. And he was standing for the first time without touching anything. It's beautiful, like, just like that. This is the feeling. It's just, there's a, an ability for us to feel that verticality. <clears throat> and it creates wakefulness. That's why this is important, that we create a stable base for an upright spine. So if you read Dogen's instruction for Zazen, he just says, you know, sit down, rock like this, rock forward and backward, rock to the side, find the center. You know, this is code for invite the spine into uprightness. If you want to make these physical movements, fine. Sometimes I do it. You know, it just feels good can be a little seaweed. The water of the mind, you know, you just and then you come into stillness with a feeling of uprightness. Gentle. Sit up. Um, the hands form what is called the cosmic mudra, like this. You, you see my hands? No. No? And sometimes people hold the, the mudra here, you know. It's, it kind of tends to, like, you inadvertently lift your shoulders, like... If possible, let them let the hands rest. I mean, the elbows rest on the thighs. Energetically, the feeling should be, and this is something you can start observing. Where are you? When someone asks you, where are you in your body? You know, are you in this head-shoulder triangle where you do your thinking? Or are you in what we call the hara? So holding the hands like this invites energy to accumulate here. And, you know, even though you hold it on the outside, it really is in the inside that you feel. Um, this is where you are. This is a big change. It sounds simple, but it's actually a big change. 
to feel like I'm resting here instead of like I'm up here looking around, thinking about things. <clears throat> so energy actually has to drop to arrive here. It's a kind of relaxation and getting out of your head, and we can talk about that. Now, this is a little thing that I'll share with you, a little secret. I didn't know it for a long time. But um, you can experiment. So say you're a little tired or sleepy. You can experiment with turning the wrists outward like this. It's, you, you almost don't do it physically. You could just think it. It's like this way. This is exaggerated right now. You basically don't move it. It's like just your mind instructs the hands to the the wrist to turn this way. And then you you think the elbows to go this way. So the wrist goes this way and the elbow goes the other way. This is hard. <laughs> Can't do it. You just, just just take it in as an idea. This this will energize your body. You don't want to do it physically. Just feel as if it's happening. So now we do the same thing when you when we walk in Kinhin, the posture is this, like there's the the um, thumb in your left fist, and then you put your hand on top of it, and then you turn the wrists just slightly this way. And you want to feel the elbows to drop. So this goes this way, and the elbow goes down. <coughs> and the effect should be a kind of opening in the body. This is a martial arts technique. Can I have a piece of paper, please? When we chant, the posture for chanting is this. You have three fingers here and then two fingers in like this. And you hold it like this. And... The reason you do it this way is because it turns the wrist this way and the elbow the other way. And you hold it right in front of your face. And when you chant, and that creates this, the energy for chanting. And it's different when you sit like this. You know? It's very small, very small difference. But the physical posture in Zen is always related to some subtle energetic um, prompting. And so the particular actually makes, uh, is precise. I mean, the particular is important because the precision of that will open the body in a certain way. It's like a little key. Now, even if you don't understand it, you are inviting it. And so it may become clear over years. (laughs) 
Um, I skipped over something I wanted to mention. I'm remembering it now. This is called the small of the back. I'm not a native speaker, you know, so like when I heard for the small of the back, it's like, what's that? Anyway, it's this area of the back. Have you heard it before? No. <laughs> yeah. it's not... Yes. You have. Yeah, but you, you're a native speaker. Yes. Easy... Okay. Now, the small of the back, you can push it out, then you slouch like this. This is like, this is lengthening the spine, actually. Believe it or not. This is, the spine gets longer this way because the vertebrae are, you know, opening. This is shortening the spine. You may be taller, sitting taller, but you actually shorten the spine because you're contracting. So to lift yourself by pushing the small of the back, it, it's not the way. You, the small of the back is very important because you can kind of calibrate your posture. So you can give some attention here and, you know, play with it, you know. Is it more like this or is it, are you going back? Now, in uh, the Taoist Qigong that I practice, this is just referred to as the kidneys. The small of the back is the kidneys. Because that's where the kidneys are. And in Taoism, the kidneys are the, are the origin, the source of energy. <clears throat> I don't know why. But the kidneys are also considered the back of the hara. So it's very related. You may feel the hara when you practice it. like You may feel that more in the front. It's a little bit inside. But the kidneys are the back of it. It's very related energetically. So give some attention to the kidneys. When you're stressed, and this is, this is something I didn't know for a long time. When you're stressed, maybe you feel it in your shoulders, like your shoulders go up or something and they get tight. But what's really happening when you're stressed almost, uh, inevitably is that you contract your kidneys. The kidneys get kind of like this. So, um, part of zazen is to relax the kidneys. You can't relax the kidneys if you overextend the spine. You have to find a way without slouching to let the kidneys go back a little bit. And I'm not talking about physically back. I'm talking about energetically back. It's almost like you want to make space for the kidneys to relax. And that feels a little bit like they're going back. There is uh, the classic instructions for Zazen say, keep the eyes half open, half closed. And um, you could do that, you know, just keep them half open, half closed. And then maybe you observe that sometimes the eyes just close and sometimes you open the eyes and there is movement there. It's not static. But something to observe uh, 
in your own sitting is when you close the eyes, you create an inward space. When you open the eyes, you're creating a, an out, outward. You are more outward oriented, taking the world in. Now, sometimes, you know, in yoga traditions, you get an instruction like, um, what is it called? I can't remember right now. But basically, the idea is, you know, you're closing down the senses. You're creating so much of an inward space. You, it's like you don't see and you don't pay attention to what you're hearing. In Zen, this is not the idea. The idea is that you are mixing interiority and exter- exter- exteriority. Half open, half closed. So it's like, if you, if you start to feel that space, what that is, it's like you can see the external world with a certain kind of softness, like as if it's inside. And you're also starting to, intru- to treat what you consider inside to not be inside. It's just part of the world. So sometimes maybe you go more inside, then you can, when you notice it, you can see, like, am I shutting out the world? <clears throat> when you have the eyes wide open, you know, you can see if you can soften that and, you know, go a little bit inside. So it's not like there's something right or wrong about the eyes, but the way I take that instruction is to pay attention to this subtle tuning and mixing of inside and outside. And uh, also in a traditional manual, you'll read that you should place the tip of the tongue at the roof of the mouth. So it curls up a little bit and it's just behind the teeth. I read some modern Zen teacher, you know, who said, oh, this is because it's, you know, you don't have to swallow so much, you know. No, it, it has an energetic reason, and it's, um, there's a, there are in, in, in the Taoist, mapping of the energetic body that is the so-called governing vessel which goes from the perineum up the spine to the top of the head and then down to the tip of the nose and to the front part of the upper palate that's the governing vessel you know and in many spiritual traditions um, practices are conducted to allow upward flow in the governing vessel there's also the central channel, but there is the governing vessel, you know, so anyway. And then there is the conception vessel, which is, which goes from the, the bottom of the, um, mouth down the throat, the front of the body to the perineum. And when you put the tongue at the roof of the mouth, you are 
connecting the governing and the conception vessel. So you can play with this a little bit. When I first heard the instruction, you know, I, I practiced this, but it didn't make much sense. But over the years, I'm glad that I've practiced it because um, I guess in hindsight, it did do something. You can, when you inhale, you can feel that your inhale comes up through the governing vessel. And when you exhale, it comes down through the conception vessel. So you're creating a kind of circle internally. Breathing in, lifting, rising energy. Breathing out, breathing out supports the settling, right? Breathing out the front of the body going down. Up, down. So the tongue is this physical instruction for a an energetic circle that we can uh, begin to invite into our city. First, you kind of make it happen by visualizing it, and I wouldn't do it for that much, you know, in your sitting, maybe do it for five minutes or something, and then let it go. You don't want to force it, you want to invite it. And ideally, it happens spontaneously, you know, eventually, over time. It's just kind of like, feels that way. You don't have to make it happen. You know, when you hear something like, yin and yang, you know, it's like, <laughs> what's that? <laughs> oh, some philosophical concept from ancient China and so forth. But that's, the feeling of rising is yang energy. And the feeling of dropping is yin energy. Sometimes this is called mixing fire and water. Fire and water is dampening the fire. And much of the energetic dimension of sitting is that you want to balance rising and settling energy, yin and yang, fire and water get mixed. So that there is a balance between being alert and relaxed. Up, ready to act, and relaxed, accepting of what is. And so our sitting is, like, energetically, our sitting is that. It's wakeful and up, and it's sleepy <laughs> and relaxed. But I say sleepy, just when you say you are sleepy, you may say, like, oh, that's bad. It's not bad. It's just not balanced. <laughs> or, you know, it's time for you to sleep, and you, that's why you're sleepy. And then people have different energetic inclinations, you know. Some people are mellow, like we say, you know. So there's a lot of yin energy, you know, down. You know? Then if you want to balance it, you want to encourage rising energy. Get familiar with what that's like, you know. What it's like to go out and, you know, do stuff. And if you're more uh, inclined to 
do that, be you know extroverted and you know active in the world, then you need to invite yin energy. Deborah said in her last talk, you know, get real quiet. So get real quiet is, you know, you can just say, oh, be still or don't move or something, but get real quiet inside energetically is a kind of soft feeling. It's like sinking into some, you know, so it's, 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 I don't know, it's like a, downward water feeling or something. You can allow that that feeling to just kind of trickle down in your body if you want to practice yin, you know. You have a lot of time when you sit zazen to just <laughs> experiment with that, you know, how does that feel? For me, because I'm more yang oriented, you know, this is this is good. Balancing. If you're more yin oriented, you know, it's like a little bit slow, and eh? generally in your constitution, what is it like to invite fire in your sitting, actually? Aside from that, you know, your constitution or your personality, if you're sleepy or you and you want to sustain alert sitting, is like the, how do you counterbalance your sleepiness? You know, how do we bring wakefulness into relaxation? This kind of playing is uh, very um, very important, actually. So that's the energetic posture. You know, and I I don't know. It doesn't get talked about very much because the idea in Far East practices is like, you have to find all of this out by yourself. You don't get instruction. It's kept a secret because those who don't find out, they don't deserve to know. Like that. You know, when you notice something, then you ask about it. If you don't ask about it, you're not told what it is. This is really, this is the, this is the approach. And I don't know what it's like. Why is it like this? It's like, yeah, but it's really like that. You just get a few things, you know, you say a few things, and then, you know, if you can't go more subtle with it, then, you know, it's just not for you. I don't think that works in the West. We're just too conditioned to be instructed. So I think it's important to mention... Um, a few things. But then it's actually true, you know, you if then it's up to each of us to pick it up and see what becomes of it and how to refine it. Because at some point it's not helpful to talk about more or you know, because it's like if you don't know the territory enough, then it just sounds like weird weird stuff. May this may already be too weird, you know. But anyway, here it is. So a few words about mental posture. We've been talking, um, if you, if you attended the last talks, 
about counting the breath. So for those of you who don't know this, you count your exhales, I suggest, from 1 to 10. And if your mind starts wandering into discursive thinking, then you go back to 1. You notice that you're thinking, then you go back to 1. And what does this practice do? I think essentially it disentangles attention from thinking. Because normally our attention is very wrapped up with our thinking mind. That's where attention is located mostly, actually. That's maybe also why we feel ourselves in the head-shoulder triangle. And to bring attention to the breath, first of all, you need to kind of locate attention here. That's the suggestion. So you feel your breath, breathing in, breathing out. You feel it here in the hara. And then you say one with the exhale. And then you say breathe in, and then you say two with the next. So... You're basically not allowing attention to get involved with your thoughts because counting interrupts it. <clears throat> and this is as, as tedious or mechanical as it may be, this is a really important skill. You may get to it in a different way. Fine, but this is how I've been taught, and so I pass it on like this. Imagine this. If, if you don't have the skill yet, or you only have it kind of partially, imagine this. If you could reliably stay att attentively with your breath, it means you can now notice with all of your senses without letting those noticings go to thought. Again, if you watch an infant like I'm doing right now, is like he, he can do all kinds of things. He doesn't have to think about it. He can go from here to there. You know, just he wouldn't he, actually the reason he will not have any memory of all of this is because narrative consciousness is not in place to record what is happening. But the bo the body knows how to move in space, you know? Or if you are a musician, if you are, once you know something by heart, you can the body will just produce it. It's not like you have to think about how to produce the music. In fact, if you think about the music, it's going to get in the way. <laughs> Big time. Really bad. <laughs> So for certain activities, thinking is not useful at all. And for some activities, not thinking is much more pleasurable. But we are not just, you know, we're not just interested in pleasure when we do this practice, although that's a nice side effect. We're interested in um, ending suffering. And what does that have to do with it? It's like, if you develop the skill to notice without thinking about what you're noticing, 
basically you step out of the story that you tell about yourself or any situation. So if you can deliberately step out of the story, a lot of the suffering just will fall away. I'm not saying that we live without story or, you know, that you never tell a story. But if you have this skill, you can actually just stop having that story going on, at least for a little, for a little while. And it gives you a pause where you can kind of like say, do I want to tell a story? Is this, is this really the way I want to go about this? Because I go back and it's like the story is just gone. And then you can pick it up again, of course, you know, like tell the same story again. <laughs> And you, maybe you will, but you start to have more of a choice. Like, there could be attentiveness without storytelling. And when I say story, I just mean actually all kinds of things. Conceptualizing. I mean, you can try it out. Like, say you're tired. Tired is a concept. Associated with the, with the mm, assessment that you're tired are just certain body sensations. And if you can interrupt the story tired, you could just live the body sensations that you call tired. And there's, you know, there's much less drama involved. Like, I shouldn't be tired, or I don't want to be tired, or why am I always so tired, or, you know, other people are not that tired. Or This is just one example. It could be anything. And it's just body sensations that are actually happening, and tired is an addition to that. So when you count the breath, you are training attention to become disentangled from thinking. It's a very basic skill. And at some point, you can stop counting and just follow the breath. Just feel it, which is noticing the sensations without thinking about them. Which could be then applied to other things, you know, just seeing things without thinking about them. Now, in your Oriyoki practice, which we've just, you know, we're going to do, and Deborah gave you an instruction. For a while, I was practicing naming every gesture that I'm making, you know, lifting the bowl, putting the bowl down. I would say that stuff to me, right? Putting the spatula in the bowl. Sometimes I was struggling to find a name, you know, like this whole phrase because it was going too fast and stuff, you know. But I was actually trying to be diligent. Just name every gesture. I don't know if I should recommend this to you, but I did it for quite a while. And what it did is, like, because my mind wasn't so firmly trained in not thinking, it's like by naming everything I was doing, I was staying in the present. Because it was blocking the mind from thinking about the past or the future. I was just naming the things I was doing. It's actually really hard to do. You can try it tomorrow. Because your mind just wants to go somewhere. It's just like counting. And to hold your mind on what you're actually doing is remarkably difficult. 
And this is a test. This is like a test. You can tell yourself, yeah, my mind is on what I'm doing, but you know, the counting, you can't, you can't, you can't bullshit yourself. When you name every, every gesture in the Oriuki, you, you, you notice when you go somewhere else with your mind. So sometimes, you know, people say, oh, mindfulness practice increases concentration. Yeah, it does. And you can, you can test it there. Can you stay, can you put your attention on the Oriyoki each gesture and just do that and not let your mind go somewhere else? It's not like it's bad if your mind goes somewhere else. It's just what it is. It goes somewhere else. And what I find more interesting here is like, oh, I have or don't have the ability to actually stay present with what I'm doing. And it's interesting, when you don't have that capacity, it limits activity. For example, it it limits the activity to listen. When people talk about listening skills, you know, I often like wonder what that is. It's like, it's like, listening skill to me means like you can listen to what somebody says and not think about it. Just let it come in. Now, the whole so this ability to be attentive without thinking is kind of like listening to the world. Because each thing then can deliver an impression and it's not immediately turned into a story that you're already familiar with. So there's a freshness that comes. You know, this is all stuff that Zen is talking about. Okay, so th- so much for sitting zazen and some practices that we can do. Physical, setting up your body, energetic, and then how to um, what to do with your mind. Um, tomorrow, I want to expand on that a little bit. I think it's like if you ask yourself. What is the, what is the next dimension of what the fruit that comes from counting your breath with this idea of disentangling attention from thinking? It's like if you ask this ancient, um, spiritual question, who am I? You can answer the question with thinking. You can say, I was born in such and such a place, and then I did that, and then I had these kinds of parents, and this is how I grew up, and this happened to me, and now I relate to it this way, and this is my idea of where I want to go in the future, you know, something like that. That's who you are when you answer the question of thinking. But when you, as I like to say, when you answer the question with breathing, who are you? When you 
don't go to thinking, then what, what, what are you? Who are you? What are you? What we are outside of the story that we're telling about ourselves is something we can only really explore when we disentangle attention from thinking. That's when you can start exploring it. So that's why it's such an important skill.